Welcome to Game Study Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for learning everything you might want to know about the academic discipline of game studies, or at least the parts of it we've read. I'm Cameron Kunzelman. And I'm Michael Lutz. This is the big 11. Mm-hmm. One-one. The big one-one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we have a pretty good talent for saying the, num- the numbers <laughs> themselves uh, almost at the exact same time. That's how you know you got a good podcast yep. cooking. Yep, yep. Oh, golly, Michael, we are reading, or read, for this episode, mm-hmm. Alexander Galloway's Gaming, Essays on Algorithmic Culture. Mm-hmm. We did. It has a weird cover. It, you know what it does? I've never really looked at it too much, but if you do look at it, it appears to be two wheelchairs mm-hmm. with a bunch of Unreal Tournament health pickups. Yep. Where are they up to, you think? What's that, what's that all about? I don't know. <laughs> I'm the one with the degree in reading images. And I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just am struck by it because it's like, okay, that's I, that's a juxtaposition. <laughs> well, send us an email if you think you have an idea of what's going on, because that has nothing to do with the contents of the book. <laughs> Is it a piece of art, perhaps? No? Nope. I, yeah, I, I think I remember like trying to look it up and i couldn't find anything because i was like is, is this like is there an artist here that i should be familiar with yes so it's a brody condon piece okay yeah which we'll talk we'll talk about brody condon yeah. uh later in the episode but yeah so it's on it's on my back of the book at the very bottom okay courtesy of the artist so that's why okay that I actually that. explains nothing <laughs> that doesn't that, that gives us no information other than this is some art i mean he's mentioned so there we go Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yes. 2006, University of Minnesota Press. Mm-hmm. We have already seen some Minnesota Press books in this podcast series. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ready Player Two. Mm-hmm. And that might be it. No. <laughs> Games of Empire. Games of yeah, Empire Games is also of Minnesota. Empire. Yeah. It's just like we've already um, seen some. Exactly one other. <laughs> one and one makes two, which is some. That's episode 11, one and one. It's all coming together. Mm-hmm. Um, this is in the Electronic Mediations series, which is kind of a famous series. Um, you know, different presses. If, if you're not an academic, different presses have basically different, uh, I don't know, verticals or streams that their content fits into. Mm-hmm. Um, and so electronic mediations is kind of, I guess, I guess it's still going on. I actually don't know, but, um, for a long time was kind of like, this is where interesting, very forward thinking media studies work is happening. And so this is the number 18th book in the series. And I think at last count, it was up to like 50 something, maybe um, other notable things in here. UC Perica's book, insect media, I believe. Mm-hmm. No, that's in post humanities, I think. Um, yeah. No, in any case, uh, other ones in here, uh, Marie Laurie Ryan, uh, avatars of story is in here. Um, Laura Croft, cyber heroine by Astrid Duber Mankowski. I've never read that book, but that seems interesting. Um, a Don ID book is in here. A Flusser book is in here. Um, Stephen Shaviro's Connected is in here. So it's good. Oh, heck. It's a good series to yeah. be in. And uh, Tim Murray's Digital Baroque. Oh, yeah. I've met Tim Murray before. <laughs> have you met Tim Murray I, before? I have not met Tim Murray, no. 
Is there? He's a very interesting man. Okay. <laughs> he's, he's, he's an interesting dude. <laughs> that and that's not positive or negative. That is just purely a statement. He is legitimately an interesting dude. Okay. Cool. I saw him. Uh, I saw him give a presentation at a conference that was just like a full hour and a half of him just talking about stuff that was in their archive. <laughs> <laughs> he's at he's at Cornell, right? Somewhere like that. Um, yeah, he was just like, here's all this art we've got. Look at it. <laughs> it, was, it was a good time. All right. Uh, but that, we're, this is not about Digital Bro. No, it's not. Not. No. Not at all. <laughs> not even a little bit. Um, Alexander Galloway, just FYI, since we, we I, I personally have failed at providing all this appropriate information uh, the past <laughs> couple times here, but um, Alexander Galloway is at NYU Steinhardt, uh, where he is a professor of media, culture, and communication um, in the media, culture, and communication department. Um, he's written several other books. I, I think I've read every Alexander Galloway book. Um, oh, well, well look at you. I know I'm very fancy and very cool, um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I've read all of them. I have the Laurel book, so so basically he wrote a couple books on Deleuze and and Gilles Deleuze and, and Deleuzean ideas. Um, so he wrote this book, which has quite a bit of that in it that we're reading today, and he wrote a book called Protocol before that, um, which is about new media studies and how new media needs to take seriously. Uh, networking and and the protocols that allow for networking to happen. Um, and then since then, he's written a book called The Interface Effect, which is kind of like this game or this book on steroids. I mean, it's like just everything above and beyond and taken to the 10,000th degree. Um, <laughs> it is quite interesting. He spends a very long time reading one screenshot from World of Warcraft. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty cool. Um also on his faculty page, he has a thing for excommunication, which is a book that uh, Galloway and Mackenzie Wark and uh, Eugene Thacker wrote together that's about communication as a kind of discipline um, and as a way of organizing media studies. It's a polemic book. It's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's got this this book on La Rorelle that is called Against the Digital, uh, which I have read the intro for, but have not read the whole thing. Um so I'm what you call a comprehensive reader <laughs> of Alexander Galloway. Have you read much Galloway, Michael? Um, I have read. Uh, I've read Excommunications. Um, I have read uh, The Interface Effect. No, I did not read The Interface Effect. I tried to read The Interface Effect. I got started on that. The one I did read was um, Protocol. Mm-hmm. So I think, I feel like somehow I have actually read more of him than that, but it must have been like scattered essays or something. Yeah, I think it, he does quite a bit of blogging. We probably mm-hmm. read some of his blog. And then, yeah, he, every few years he'll have like a string of essays come out. He did um, that series of lectures in New York that ended up being a bunch of PDFs of like the the next wave of French philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, so you might have read some of those. One was on Mia Sue, one was on La Rurelle, one was on oh. um, Catherine Malibu. Yeah, I've absolutely read uh, his one on La Rurelle. So that's where another thing. See, there you go. Yeah. Boom. Um, very comprehensive readers. But importantly, um, this is kind of his only book that's just about games. Mm-hmm. You know, his other books deal with games in, in, in some way or they show up, um, but they show up as examples of contemporary media culture. Mm hmm. 
this is his only book uh, as far as I'm, I, I will say, state, statement. This is his only book. This is straight up about games. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, it's interesting, right? Um, you know, had you read this book before? I had not. I had been meaning to. In fact, I think I might be the person who put this on the list that we keep um, of mm-hmm. books we want to read. I think I put this one there. So that's why it was there, because I wanted to read it, uh, because I like Galloway, and I wanted to see what he had to say about gaming. Because you're mm-hmm. right. Uh, he really... I guess in his other work, and, and to some degree in this one, um, he is, it's it's a very interesting shift in focus, uh, especially from like a game studies perspective, because he's almost a platform theorist, mm-hmm. right? He's, he's uh, not so much interested, for instance, in games as he is in um, the very basic functioning of computer technology and how that is uh, slowly shifting social life, and games just happen to be one of the things that uh, we use a lot of computer technology for. And he ends up making this argument, as we shall talk about, uh, that this fits ideologically sort of into the spirit of the times in in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah, and I was just looking up, too, while you you were saying that. I was trying to figure out where this fits into, like, the kind of timeline trajectory. And so, rightly or wrongly, I I like to do a lot of... Not like to. I often, in my head, periodize books in relationship to when Persuasive Games came out, the Ian Bogost book. Mm -hmm. And not because that book is, you know, some some sort of landmark text that we can't get around. I mean, it's, it's an interesting book, and it's cool. Um, but more because to me that 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 book is kind of a um, sea change in the way that games get talked about. A lot of things have to begin responding to that book, or or a lot of people just adopt it wholesale. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that that kind of is a big book, um, and that's 2010. So this is 2006, um, and to my mind, like persuasive games is kind of on the tail end of um, just a lot of different people of that generation so i'm thinking of like mia consalvo and gonzalo frasca and all those other people and uh espin arseth uh, mm-hmm. who's even earlier than this right but but um that this ends to me um bogus uh persuasive games ends some sort of wave of game studies uh, or it pulls it to a close and then other questions start getting asked either in response to that or trying to address things that that bogus spoke just doesn't address um, and so I think that gaming, that this, the Galloway book is interesting because um, it, it is structurally, it is not interested in any of those same questions no. that I think other people in game studies at this, at this time are asking. No, it feels um, very unique uh, in, in terms of uh, game studies work that I've read from about this time. I don't have probably as great a sense of you as of the periodization of the chronology. Cause I, I do think that that can be helpful. Um, but even when I think about game studies of this period, I just, it feels, uh, simultaneously, uh, very kind of fresh and sort of, uh, not necessarily recent, but more like, it feels like maybe it was written eight years after it was published. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it is weirdly like a very, um, like a very forward-thinking book. And even reading this, I was thinking like, 
there are people that we have read for this podcast and certainly books that I've read in the past year that that are, that are not engaging uh, with as much clarity or as much like experience experimental thinking mm-hmm. as this book is. Um, and to some degree, that's methodological, I guess. So, so maybe we can actually turn to talking about <laughs> to talking about the book instead of talking about context. Um, which is, but that's all to say. I think we both agree it it is in a particular context, or it's released into a context that's a little bit more less solidified. Um, I think in two thousand six, game studies could have gone a lot of different ways, mm-hmm. and I think ultimately. Man, this is my feeling about this book. Game studies didn't go this way. No, it didn't. <laughs> and yet people still read this book quite a bit, mm-hmm. I think. I think it's still taught pretty often. I think it's got some uh, really good points in it that I'm very excited about. So yeah, yeah let, I, let's get going. All right. So um, it's actually kind of a short book mm-hmm. if, if people haven't looked at this already. So it's only 120-something pages. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's a short book that that... I'll say up front feels like a lot of disparate chapters that were written at different times. Yeah. And were collected into a book. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it starts with this preface before it really like makes its big claims. It starts with this preface. Um, There's just a couple pages, but I think they're like deceptively short. <laughs> you know, like the statement here is deceptively short. Yeah. Um, he says on this is page 11 or XI, I guess. Um, in the five essays in this book, I tried to formulate a few conceptual movements, a few conceptual algorithms for thinking about video games. What is an algorithm if not a machine for the motion of parts? And is it the artfulness of the motion that matters? Or no. And it is the artfulness of the motion that matters most. Following Dullism Guattari, I wish my conceptual algorithms to be as ad hoc, as provisional, as cobbled together as theirs were. Let them be what Northrop Fry once called an interconnected group of suggestions. Which, which is a very artful way of saying, listen, these have nothing to do with one another. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't know, I don't know how um, ad hoc and provisional and cobbled together Dullism Guattari's algorithms actually were, but. Um, but but yeah, that's kind of his statement. Was there anything else that stuck out to you here um, in the preface? Um, not uh, so much the the cobbled together thing. Although I do think you can wonder how uh, cobbled together they thought their work was, um, unless he's meaning that in a very generous sense. Uh, the other thing that I think is interesting is that uh, Galloway is also very clearly trying to signal himself rhetorically as a. a at a moment of cultural change, um, because he uh, name drops Frederick Jameson here, um, talking about uh, what basic, this is on the same page actually that you were just quoting. Um, In this study, I do not reduce video game studies to other fields such as literary criticism or cinema studies, nor do I attempt to dissect games as mere data for sociological or anthropological research. Instead, I attempt an analysis of what Frederick Jameson calls, quote, the poetics of social forms, that is, the aesthetic and political impact of video games as a formal medium. So what he is doing here is he is referencing um, Frederick Jameson, uh, who gave us the the term postmodernism as it is sort of most commonly thought of. Um, I suppose you could argue, like, there are, there's 
postmodernism is a term with a history, but Jameson uh, literally literally wrote the book, um, or at very least, a really important book on it. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, Jameson also uh, is very influential in terms of how he reads cinema as an ideological expression of various things going on in um, sort of the world at the time. Uh, and Galloway is essentially a position, positioning himself as uh, a version of Jameson, but for video games, but for the world of video games. Do you know why he might be doing this, Michael? Why might he be doing this, Cameron? Do, do you know who Alexander Galloway's dissertation advisor was? That's a really interesting question, Cameron. Who was Alexander Galloway's dissertation advisor? It was... Uh... Hold on, let me check my notes. Okay. Hold on, I'm, I'm flip. Hold on. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, hold on, and okay, and okay, and let me the abacus in. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. oh, yep. oh that it, goose it, is honking so loudly. Yep, it was uh, Frederick Jameson. Oh. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's kind of you know I I wrote somewhere in my notes here I was like this is a very Jamesonian book it is <laughs> like it is and and I think he's largely uh, maybe not moved all the way away from that um, just because some of his more recent writings is in that kind of like very cranky Jamesonian mode mm-hmm. um, but certainly for a little while I think moved away from Jameson. Um, but this is him in that kind of pure, uh, the, the history is the determinant of what can appear, mm-hmm. you, you know, I mean, he quotes the Jameson line somewhere in here of history is what hurts, right? Mm-hmm. History is the stuff that, that keeps churning over and over and, and plowing people underneath it. Um, you know, very Hegelian, mm-hmm. um, but but very Jamesonian, very Marxist, which is interesting because I would not consider this to be a super Marxist book in the way that we normally kind of use that word and, and kind of throw that ideology around. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of like signaling of that here, I don't think. No, no, not at all. But yeah, so uh, despite... Despite him saying here that he doesn't want to kind of like over prescribe film theory or literary studies or anything like that, we're going to get a lot of mainline film theory (laughs) (laughs) through the rest of this book. Um, I mean, he's essentially arguing that video games are kind of just the he takes the the kind of uh, common sense or kind of like general assumption that video games are sort of the next evolution of cinema. And he's just like, all right, that's true. Like let's go to the tent. Let's go to the races. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he at some point quotes Marshall McLuhan, who you know says um, every new medium contains an old the previous medium within it, mm-hmm. um, and this is something that kind of plays out through uh, Bolter and Grusin, remediation, and and all of that kind of stuff too. We might get to that book on this show, but maybe not. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so that kind of leads into the, um, the first chapter of which there are only five. And some of these I wrote three things down for. So, (laughs) so I think we probably had different ways of, of, uh, reading this book, but the first chapter is called gamic action for movements, which is a, uh, or for moments. I wrote that down wrong Four moments. What'd you think about this chapter, Mike? Um, so um, I think it's really interesting that at this ver- at the beginning of this chapter, 
he gives us this definition, right? He begins with a definition. A game is an activity defined by rules in which players try to reach some sort of goal. Mm -hmm. Um, So he gives us that definition and he sort of elaborates on this a little bit, talking about, you know, games can have all these sorts of tones. um, They can be playful or serious, Uh, you know, alone. They can be very, you can play them alone. You can play them in social settings, blah, 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 blah. And then he's just like, there is little here on game design or performance or imaginary worlds or nonlinear narrative. I avoid any extended reflection on the concept of play. Rather, this book starts and ends with a specific mass medium, the medium of the video game from the 1970s to the beginning of the new millennium. Um, so it's interesting at the beginning, I think, that he has to assert that he is talking about the video game as a medium. I think that's a really interesting way for him to, I mean, sort of set up this project that he's going for. But the fact that he is uh, treating the video game as a kind of uh, extractable category there is is like sort of the first clue to what is up with Galloway, because uh, he is not going to, uh, I mean, he is going to get like sit down and talk about how a game is played and sort of the actions that are going to be taking. Uh, He will get to that, but his primary concern uh, sort of first and foremost is what is the stuff that is making all of this possible? So what is the machine? What is uh, the computer? Yeah, he's definitely trying to, you, you know, I think that this is something we talked about in our very first episode around Jesper Yule. You know, there's a lot of boundary policing that happens around video games, particularly in early video game studies, right? I mean, people are trying to figure out what is a game and where does cinema get to plant its flag and where does game studies plant its flag and stuff like that. And I like that Galloway, he provides a definition, but that definition is just to get him far enough to begin describing what is actually occurring. Mm -hmm. You know, he's got to define the medium in order to talk about what's happening, but he's really not invested in that definition. Um, in any way other than that it as you're saying it signals the kind of bounds of this object right um i mean i thought this sentence was really interesting and and uh this is a very game study study buddies kind of thing to do to focus on a single sentence <laughs> in a book. um but because it read to me um it's an implicit defense of not having to do a lit review did you get that uh <laughs> so so here yeah. so at the beginning the, there's little here on game design. And to me, that is saying, I'm not going to be responsible for the Katie Salen, Eric Zimmerman stuff mm-hmm. that he does end up citing, but he, he's not interested in that, right? Um, or performance. I don't know who that is. But Imaginary Worlds, I think it's got to be referring to Gary Allen Fine's book, yeah. Imaginary Worlds, yeah. and he's not interested in that. And Nonlinear Narrative has got to be Hamlet on the Holodeck, yeah, right? Yeah, no, I was thinking it, it is that, yeah. So it's him being like, I know about all these books. Right. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about it. It's them a big sub tweet. <laughs> it is. Um, right there at the top of the book. That's a very Fred Jameson thing to do, I think. <laughs> uh, yeah, so anyway, um, <laughs> in addition to being uh, Jamesonian as all heck, um, what is uh, really important for Galloway here, the thing that he wants to flag is that every kind of uh, transformation or change in in mass visual culture uh, was underwritten by some sort of technological development. Mm -hmm. Um, And the technological development uh, was usually a machine of some sort that did something, right? Was uh, sort of 
made to do something. So uh, the camera that made the first static photographs, for instance, or uh, cameras that were um, designed to capture video. Um, what is a computer designed to do? It is designed to carry out tasks, to do functions, to, to literally act, to do things. Um, so in the same way that uh, the photograph and the image and sort of cinema and the moving image, uh, each, like, one uh, is sort of an evolution of the other. Games are the combination, like, they are actions, right, which sort of pull in both image and sound and sort of reaction and so on and so forth. Yeah, I, I want to read the quotation here. Okay. Um, so, so this is on page two. This is the full quotation. Begin like this. If photographs are images and films are moving images, then video games are actions. Let this be word one for video game theory. This makes no sense to me. <laughs> Zero. Like, your explanation that you just gave is very good. Yeah. And it's, it's like, the, the most charitable reading of this thing. But that, none, this, analogically, this doesn't make any sense. Oh, No. <laughs> if this were true, then it would be video games are electricity. <laughs> you know, like it's their material uh, instantiation, right? Yeah. Or, or it's like our, um, I don't know, serial key clicks. Like, I, I understand where we get to, mm -hmm. and I think video games as action is great. The way that that sentence is written to be like profound makes no sense to me. <laughs> like, not even a little bit. <laughs> And I have puzzled over this before. And even when I was reading this, I was just like, did I miss something? Like, what? What is action defined differently here? <laughs> um, but no, I don't think it is. It's just a very easy thing to do. Consider the formal differences between video games and other media. Indeed, one takes a photograph, one acts in a film. <laughs> These are radically different things. Those yeah. are not, those are also are not analogous <laughs> to one another. Um it was anyway. it was 2006, and you could do this. I guess you could do this, yeah. But but it gets him to a very interesting place, and I think a, a theoretically rewarding place. And what is that, Cameron? We get a Grimus square. Yep. <laughs> it is not drawn as a Grimus square. Yep. No, when you had that in your notes, I was like, oh, okay, good. I I thought that I could have mapped that if I wanted to, but I didn't at the time. <laughs> it's, it is a Grimus square tilted over on its side. So for people who don't know... A Grimus square is uh, kind of made famous by Frederick Jameson, as far as I know. I mean, I think other people were using them, but I think he's the person that really put it as the core of his method. Mm -hmm. um, and it's basically a way of looking at negation and synthesis. Um, so in traditional dialectics, right, you got two things. You got a thesis and antithesis. You've got capitalism. You've got, uh, you know, the response to capitalism. In whatever form, and I smash into one, in one another, and you get the synthesis. Mm -hmm. That is an incredibly simplified form of the dialectic. Please don't use that anywhere. That is not sufficient. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but but that's your your basic dialectic idea that there are two things, uh, something and its um, negation, and they run into each other, and it creates something new on down the line. Um, a Grimus square is basically you draw a square of four terms. And it's um, an ob something, it's negation, the negation of the negation, and the negation of the negation of the, ne the negation, right? 
that's the way you come to your terms. I'm going to say this is just as good in in the spoken word as it is in the written word without any visuals. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but you, know, you can look it up. You can look up a grammar square. But basically, it's a way of, of mapping relational terms, mm-hmm. um, particularly in dealing with negation, uh, you know. That's the, that's right. my short version of a complicated argument. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, it's like, you know those memes where they, like, put, like, one thing along one axis and one thing another axis, and then you produce a bunch of joke results by, like, following, as if you're doing, like, a Punnett square for crossbreeding them or whatever? It's yes. that, but for concepts. <laughs> yeah, it's that, but for, like, the, the wheel of history. Right. <laughs> that keeps turning on. Um, but, yeah, it actually takes a minute for him to... Give us all of the terms here, right? Yeah. But we basically end up with like an axis. If you think of a, um, like an X and a Y axis and at the top, you know, it's, so it's a cross. So at the top, uh, we have diegetic and at the bottom we have non-diegetic and on the left we have operator and on the right we have machine. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess I, so. I'll talk about diegetic and non-diegetic. I guess really briefly. Okay. Um, these, these are terms that show up all kinds of places um, in literary theory. I'm assuming in theater stuff mm-hmm. that shows up. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I, I mean, my big familiarity with it is in cinema studies, where it's a huge thing. So, the diegesis or the diegetic world, or however you want to say it, um, is everything within the world of of the piece of fiction or, or the artifice. Um, and so basically, you know, if you imagine that we are outside of that world and the camera is our kind of like, um, you know, piece of scuba equipment into this fictional universe and we're just flying around and looking at stuff, everything that we can look at is diegetic um, and everything that is us viewing it as well as that camera uh, is non-diegetic, the operations of the camera. So when we talk about... Um, I don't know, a character's feelings for another character, we're analyzing the diegesis, the diegetic world. When we are talking about the series of shots that are used in order to make us understand that relationship without any words, that's non-diegetic. And that happens in all kinds of ways, too. Um, I actually don't know how non-diegetic gets talked about in in theater, but in literary studies, you can imagine a very similar thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you have anything to, to any additional diegesis information? Uh, not particularly. Uh, okay. Although I guess I can cover then, uh, what is it? Is a machine an operator, he calls it? Yeah. Right. So, <clears throat> if we have uh, these terms that are kind of opposing each other, diegetic versus non-diegetic, um, these can be thought of as uh, types of actions that uh, can occur in uh, the, the playing of a video game. That's sort of like that, that's that field of possibility, diegetic or non-diegetic actions. Mm-hmm. So then uh, sort of crossing that on the other axis, we have on the one hand, uh, on the far left operator and on the far right machine. So these are the things uh, in the playing of a game which will take or make actions. So of course what this means is that uh, the operator who is the person playing the game you know, operating the computer, uh, they will do things during the course of the game that could be understood as diegetic to the game and as non-diegetic to the game. So, for instance, if you are playing a game um, and it is, uh, 
uh, you know, you it's a first-person shooter and you're walking down a hallway. In, in diegetic terms, the player character is walking down the hallway. If you were to tell the story of the game, that is what you were talking about. Um, that is what you would relay to someone. Then non-diegetic uh, actions that the operator may take uh, would be something like pausing the game or opening a, like a menu that in some other way halted kind of the narrative progression. Uh, something that you would maybe probably not necessarily uh, talk about in your review of the game to someone else, um, unless you're specifically talking about a like menu mechanic. Uh, along with that, of course, the machine is also taking actions that might be diegetic, uh, which would be, you know, uh, showing you the things you need to see in order to you for you to process the story or narrative or whatever is being kind of conveyed to you within the fiction. And then the machine may also do non-diegetic actions. Um, and these are the, you know, subtle things, the pro the background processes that are, uh, for instance, rendering the things that you are seeing, uh, but they can also be things like um, crashes that interrupt the flow of the game. Yeah, and and he works through all of these, like, combinations in, in various different ways, and he also does it by way of quite a bit of French theory and, mm -hmm. and kind of game studies history stuff here. So Calois shows up quite a bit, uh... Hozinga shows up, um, uh, notes on the Balinese cockfight. Mm -hmm. um, who is that? I don't... Geertz. Oh, yeah. Clifford Geertz. Um, and some other stuff, too. So that's all kind of, like, interweaved within here. But, yeah, as, as you're talking through these, each of these combinations are, like, a key term for him. Um, and they play out the entire space of what games can be and what games can do. Um, and so just to, just to name them off really quickly. So he says, um, the first one we get is on H, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which is pure process one. Yeah. Yeah. But it's pure process, but I forget which one this actually is. Uh, machine phylum. Yeah. I don't have. Oh, diegetic machine acts. Yes, okay. So, th so this is like the cars driving around in Grand Theft Auto. Mm -hmm. um, basically, a human being can put the controller down, and the world continues to simulate itself. Um, so his examples here are like Shinmu. Um, I know that's not how you say it. <laughs> don't send me emails about it. <laughs> Thankfully, I don't check the emails. Send as many emails as yeah. you want. <laughs> yeah, I'll just, I'll just send it elsewhere. Um, yeah, um, Grand Theft Auto yeah. 3... Yeah, those are his big two. The other yeah. thing, the other thing, I guess we should probably flag about this book is that um, the one of the things that comes up, sort of uh, again and again, kind of in uh, blurbs about this book or like in the back cover copy, is the fact that Galloway played like over one hundred games. Is, is, is that true? That is over one hundred. Over one hundred, I believe, or it like cites over one hundred games. I have seen something about this. Um, mm hmm. And it's just, it's it's like, yeah, okay, that's cool. That means he has a lot of experience. But it also just ends up being extremely amusing to me because he cites so many games and they are all so, so dated. So <laughs> he spends a lot of time talking about Final Fantasy X. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, he, he got a lot of value out of his PlayStation 2. He did. Um, like a whole lot. So, yeah. 
Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy X, so this is a, that's a great, great segue, Cameron, uh, is a good example to contrast uh, with something like Grand Theft Auto 3, because uh, it, like, that doesn't simulate a world, like, Final Fantasy X does not simulate a world in the same way. There are not kind of um, processes going on that are sort of independent of what the player character is doing in the world. Like, there's... You know, the, the, like the the process that is running, um, like the random encounter system might be run, like that that might be going, but it is not sort of like a diegetic factor. It's not a thing that you would see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and basically he is saying without saying that that to play Final Fantasy X is to play a menu for the most part. Mm-hmm. It, it is you are operating the sphere grid, you're operating all the combat menus and things like that. So he specifically calls it a non diegetic. Or, or it, it involves non-diegetic operator acts, for the most part, mm-hmm. which is you're not playing in the world of the game, you're playing in the world of making choices about attack, defend, use item, summon, whatever. You are playing um, the game through the interface that it presents you. Yeah, and that interface is abstracted from the game world. Right. Um, uh, which is something that that I, I think these divisions make a lot more sense in 2006 than they do now, uh, you know, because, you know, Final Fantasy 15 is an open world simulation video game like everything else is, I guess, at this point. Um, but but these these do feel a little bit we have to appropriately periodize, I think, this theory, mm-hmm. um, especially because, you know, it's 2007 where we get Assassin's Creed where, like, certain buttons map to certain hands, you know, so yeah. uh, circle is the right hand, square is the left hand, stuff like that, um, where game developers really are thinking through this relationship to interface and all that kind of stuff. I, I mean, I find that really fascinating. Um but this is him just trying to kind of lay out what's going on, particularly during the PS2 era. Um, and again, there's a lot of French theory interweaved in here. If you're interested in that, you can check that out. But I don't know if it's actually necessary to understand the argument. Is that fair? Yeah, no, I would say. I would say if... So the other thing that I would flag here then is when I laugh because I say these games are really old, the other thing that I think is actually very key to understanding about um, my relationship to and my reaction to this book is that they are for the most part games that I have played and they're Mm -hmm. specifically right. The games that I associate with um, like a certain sort of period in my adolescence. Um, And so when he talks about things in weird ways and I don't even understand um, like what he's doing with the theory, I understand what he's talking about because I understand the game right? Like, I understand the feelings he's describing. And that's a really interesting thing about this book that I didn't put together until just right now. Yeah. Yeah, no, I... I, Reading through it, I was like, oh yeah, I know exactly what this is. I know exactly how this works. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, like, the argument... I, I, I think that on face, saying something like, Final Fantasy X is mostly about menus... It sounds dismissive, mm-hmm. and I think that there are a lot of people in game studies who would say that and mean it in a very dismissive way. Obviously, like you read the writing here, this is from a position of love. Right. <laughs> like this person played all of Final Fantasy X and took screenshots from it. Right, right, right. Um, well, it's like I, I, I read Alexander Galloway, or I don't, but I imagine reading Alexander Galloway just writing Final Fantasy X as a game of menus, and he's saying it in the media theorist way of like, look at what this thing is doing. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, look at 
like, this is really interesting, right? This is an unprecedented thing <laughs> in terms of, like, entertainment objects. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and part of his reason for that, I think, and so this is on page 17, um, and I think it's a really useful quotation. So he's reading through Clifford Geertz on the Balinese cockfight. If you're not familiar with that piece, it's a, kind of a classic piece in cultural anthropology in which Geertz is reading... Um, the role, the cultural role of cockfighting, rooster fighting. We um, have to have talked and, about this before at some point, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, we have, yeah. I think. I think maybe during uh, Literary Gaming, I think which so. has a very similar kind of lit review to this book, actually. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so he says, this is on 17. Um, I have proposed non-diegetic operator links follows the same or follow the same logic revealed in Geertz's analysis of the Balinese cockfight, or indeed Marx's understanding of social labor. Colon. Just as the commodity form carries within it a map for understanding all of the larger contradictions of life under capitalism, and just as the cockfight is a site for enacting various dramas of social relations, so these non-diegetic operator acts in video games are an allegory for the algorithmic structure of today's informatic culture. Okay, so when you play the menu game, you are using capabilities... um, Uh, types of labor, ways of thinking about the world that uh, exist in all other forms of your life. This is the exact same argument that's being deployed in Games of Empire. Mm -hmm. We're we're like already familiar with that. Yes. But the reason reason I'm I'm reading this, right, is that this is buried in this paragraph, I think, um, but is a fundamental, I don't know if everyone would, would phrase it this way, but it is a fundamental belief of many people within academic media studies writ large. So literary studies, uh, theater, performance studies, all those kinds of things. That you can look at an object, right? Whatever it is, a video game, a dance, whatever. Mm -hmm. And you can see, uh, as he says, a map for understanding. that, Mm -hmm. That that object is a micro version or is caught in a micro web of relations that mimic the macro relations Mm -hmm. that is capitalism. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a fundamental belief, I think, right? Yes, right. I mean, the other way of talking about this is to say that um, it's symptomatic reading. It's understanding um, the the object, the text, what have you, as in some way, uh, like, being an expression maybe not directly, but in some sort of indirect way very often. Uh, and if you're a Freudian, uh, when, when I say symptom, I mean that, you know, quite, quite medically. Uh, the, it's the, the seemingly unconnected behavior that emerges in response to some sort of uh, unpleasant stimulus or trauma. So uh, the, 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 the emphasis on contradictions being here is important because, again, that's that kind of Marxist um, Hegelian idea that uh, there are contradictions in life under capitalism and they are kind of given a range to be smashed together and allegorically sublimated uh, within kind of the fantasy space of, of video games in this case. Yeah. Yeah, that whatever that the forces that exist in all other aspects of your life that are smashing together to produce all kinds of horrors and sometimes benefits 
that those are also operating in your relationship to the media object, whatever that is. Um, and so I think a lot of people have a hard time, um, you know, when you read an op-ed or you read a piece of academic criticism or whatever, and they, they look at it and they say, well, this object does X, Y, Z. You're drawing a line to ABC. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, you know, that, that's exactly the kind of operation that Amanda Phillips' piece that we read is doing, right? Mm-hmm. Here's something in visual culture. Here's uh, video games. Here is politics. Here's how they're all lined up together. But but important. it's just, I think, important to flag that this is the structure that kind of verifies or initiates that claim, right? That, that these things all, the relationships that these things are in all mimic one another. Mm-hmm. They all have the same types of relationships under capitalism. Right. Um, and he'll t- we'll actually kind of get into this later. Another way of saying it is uh, you are taking the text or the artifact as uh, essentially an allegory for the conditions that produced it. Yeah. Absolutely. So the next one that we have is, uh, are we at non-diegetic? Uh, well, we talk, gosh, these things, they have the same words. I know it's very difficult. Um, the diegetic operator act. Yeah. The dramanon. I don't know what that is. (laughs) Do you know what that is? (laughs) Um, I know he defines dramanon, but I don't remember yeah. it. It means down. it means like uh, act or action. Mm. Uh, something acted, an act, action. That yeah. which is enacted or the stuff of action is a drama, which again means act. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is this quoting? Oh, it's Huizinga, of course. Yeah. There's a reason we haven't done that book yet. <laughs> <laughs> but but basically here, right? The the idea is that this is when you do a kickflip in Tony Hawk. Yep. This is you're hitting buttons. You're the operator. You're hitting those buttons because you want to do a Christ air as Mike V overneath the elephants or above the elephants. Um, you know, doing 360 spin. That's you. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's basically it is it is your movement act and your expressive act within the game world, like those abilities. Next one. <laughs> um, oh, actually, I should say one other thing that, in uh, what, another th- sort of key, I think, to understand um, what Galway is getting up to here. Uh, a note: this is a thing he says several pages back. I just wanted to flag it. Um, mm-hmm. He says that action is a text. Yeah, and that's going to give you some sense of how he is approaching games here. Action is a text. He is not reading necessarily the uh, representationalist uh, visuals of it uh, or the code of it. He is reading the ability, like the ways in which action is structured. So, yeah, he he has not. Um, this doesn't show up in in the book at all. But one gets a sense that Alexander Galloway would be very okay with you playing Gears of War or whatever. And skipping all the cutscenes, mm-hmm. and then having no idea what actually happened, mm-hmm. but he would still read that as like a particular kind of, of set of actions and expressions, and that would ultimately that is the game for him as much as you know watching all the cutscenes or whatever. Right, right. Um, so yeah, that's that's uh, what those things are. Right, the the dramanon are the the actions that are either about your movement or about um, the ways that you can exercise kind of agency in, in the world. Yeah. Um, and so then the last one are non-diegetic machine acts, which you talked about a bit uh, before. 
but this is literally things that are not represented in the world that the machine is doing. Mm-hmm. Just period. Right. So that's just like, you know, whatever whatever is going on in the background that's operating your field of view. That's part of that. Um, but then also, and I think this is a really interesting um, little example. He says that death, when you like, when your player character dies in a game or you lose temporarily or something in a game, he calls this a disabling act as opposed to, of course, what would be something like an enabling act. So uh, giving you a power up or what have you. Um, a disabling act... Uh, that is uh, non-diegetic uh, for the machine in the sense that uh, at, when you die in Grand Theft Auto, Vice City, he specifically points out, um, you just sort of reappear outside of, and this is true for most Grand Theft Auto games, you just kind of reappear outside of the hospital or like the closest hospital to wherever it was you died. Um, and the sort of ostensible reason that this is happening in the game is that a taxi has taken you to the hospital because you have like a little like some money comes out of your account afterward because uh you have to pay for your hospital bills and for your taxi to the hospital or the ambulance Mm -hmm. so that's like sort of this weird like thing that is i guess i don't know written somewhere in the manual um or maybe in a menu somewhere uh but it is a um like weird diegetic cover for a non-diegetic function that's the way he yeah. puts it right it's like a a sort sort of like story pretense for uh some weird absurd game mechanic yeah and he goes through a few of these um voice recorders as save station in the thing and i guess we could think about like typewriter ribbons as uh, mm-hmm. in resident evil or uh, leaning against a wall in the getaway. Like, these are things that are masking necessary parts of the game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, this reminds me of uh, Yule way back in the first episode uh, where he talks about uh, coherent and incoherent world games. And if you go back and listen to that episode, at the time I mentioned that, though I didn't disagree with the point that Yule was trying to make, I didn't like the way that he had phrased what he was talking about. Um, this idea that, uh, you know, the the fact that there was some sort of uh, um, function within the game that wasn't sort of incorporated into the story because it was a uh, like just a pretense or a game mechanic um, mm-hmm. made that story world incoherent. I thought that that was confusing because I think it necessarily meant that any uh, any game is uh, incoherent. Like there is no such thing as a coherent story world for a game, um, if that's the case, because you're always doing something that is not sort of uh, completely like one to one related to what is going on on screen, um, and this actually gets around that really, really well for precisely the reasons I kind of like took objection with the way that Yule had formulated those terms. Yeah, Jesper Yule didn't deal with psychomantis at all, did he? No, he didn't. Hmm. I see you're playing Suikoden. Yeah. So, <laughs> what's psychomantis have to do with this? Um, I just, so Psychomantis just gets used as one of the examples yeah. here. Yeah, I'm just I'm uh, leading you to explain it to our dear dear listeners. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but but yeah, so this is on 34 and 35. Um, so Psychomantis in Me- the original Metal Gear Solid uh, would do things like make your controller move. Ooh. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and he would also read your memory card. And if you had other Konami games in your memory card, he would say, like, oh, I, I, I see that you enjoy saving the world, Jowie. <laughs> or whatever. Uh, Suikoden is the only game I can remember that it, <laughs> it deals with. Um, but yeah, it's just an example of um, this non-diegetic space being interacted with via diegetic elements. Um, so the quotation he says is on 35. The narrative follows faithfully enough to explain breaking di- the diegesis and after the short diversion, the players safely return to normal gameplay. Mm-hmm. Um, so literally, it's just this... Um, moment of jetting out to give this kind of interesting context or to use the non-diegetic as a kind of a playful space and then to return back into the diegesis. And this is all wrapped up in a big reading of Derrida, which is interesting, but probably would need its own episode <laughs> to, <laughs> yeah. to really talk about. Yeah. Um, um, one thing in this chapter, I know, see this in your notes. <clears throat> you have a quote from page 17 video games render social realities into playable form and then you put in brackets next to that in giant letters let us talk about this uh oh heck did I do that you did <laughs> why would I do this oh that was just that's uh, so that's the other piece of uh, what I wanted to talk about or what I was talking about earlier with the commodity form mm-hmm. and marks okay. uh, that's the same section of that <clears throat> right okay I just wanted to make sure that that's what that was um, yep all right uh, so then we move on to the next chapter. Are you ready for that? Yeah. Oh, I want to oh. say, um, just really briefly, you know, we love a big complicated graph oh, here at do. Game Study Study Buddies. And page 38, if you've got a physical copy of this book, I, I, I might take a picture of this and put it on the description as well. It's just a big old confusing graph. It has, like, qualities of action Mm -hmm. that I guess existed in these sections that I didn't really flag, but they're written out clearly here. Mm -hmm. Um, It has some emblematic games, some of which don't get talked about at all in this chapter. Yeah. So it's just, it's it's a good old time if you want the the quick and easy version of this, um, of the whole chapter in graph form. Uh, But yeah, now I'm ready to talk about chapter two, the cinema chapter. Mm -hmm. As it is called here... Origins of the first-person shooter. So I'll be honest, I wrote down four notes. Or no, three notes for this entire chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, what, did, what did you find interesting about it, Michael? So what I find interesting here um, is, I mean, just to begin, okay? So how this chapter begins, this is going to be some, uh, some good old Galloway uh, prose here um where he just says a thing and we're gonna we're gonna ruminate on it the beginning of a medium is that historical moment when something ceases to represent itself okay (laughs) and then he quotes the theater brings onto the rectangle of the stage one after the other a whole series of places that are foreign to one another wrote foucault in one of his infrequent forays into aesthetics and this is quoting Foucault again. Thus, it is that the cinema is a very odd rectangular room, at the end of which, on a two-dimensional screen, one sees the proje- projection of three-dimensional space. Unquote. The movie theater is a complex intersection of seemingly incommensurate media environments. A three-dimensional space is used for viewing two-dimensional, a two-dimensional plane that in turn represents the illusion of another three-dimensional space. Um... So this uh, kind of weird beginning here, thinking about 
media flowing through themselves and media uh, in space, uh, specifically touching off uh, Foucault and his discussion of theater here, which I believe um, is the... Um, it's from other spaces, uh, which is where he outlines the idea of the heterotopia. Um, Mm -hmm. so the hetero, like heterotopia for Foucault, um, is, well, it's a lot of things, um, but it is what sort of the title of the essay suggests, right? It is, it is the other space. It is the space where things, um, become different. Um, like, so following off of what Galloway has said, right? Uh, if the beginning of a medium is the historical moment when something ceases to represent itself, um, then it makes sense to me as a person who does media and theater that one of the things um, Galloway is doing here, whether or not he knows it, I'm not sure if he does, uh, is making an argument for the theater as a primal medium. Uh, Because the theater is... uh, the sort of reduction of this progression of space as a medium that he's outlined. Um, which is to say, it's the theater, and this is pulling from performance studies, um, theater is the moment where uh, you walk into the room and you're like, this is not this is not this room, this is another room, right? This is not here, this is there. Pretend with me, yeah. right? Um, so that is very, very interesting to me. <laughs> because I'm me. Uh, so there's all of that. I think that is interesting, and I'll have more, I think, to say about theater later. Um, but this chapter, largely speaking, uh, becomes a kind of rumination on the ways that games, as opposed to cinema, uh, have been able to represent first-person uh, subjective shots in a way that um, is very distinct from how they work in cinema. So he gets into a very long history of, well, to make a very clear distinction, right? Um, because this is a distinction he makes. Uh, there is such a thing as a point of view shot, and then there is a subjective point of view shot. A point of view shot um, is going to show you a kind of inset shot or an intercut shot of something more or less like as as a character might see it. So this might also be like an over-the-shoulder shot. You're not necessarily looking through the character's eyes, but you're sort of um, seeing it as you would see it from their perspective, but you're still the camera. The subjective point of view shot is usually signaled by um, some sort of difference in in the camera. Uh, so maybe there's going to be a vignette around it, a sort of like little bit of um, shadow to sort of suggest the, the, the peripheral vision and the curves of, of the human eye. Um, and it's going to wobble more rather than being very steady. It's going to do more to convey the experiences of the first person um, viewer. So this is interesting for Galloway because in cinema, this sort of shot is almost always used for alienation right yeah absolutely or the subjective shot the subjective shot yeah yeah it's used to disorient Um, or alienate the viewer in some way yeah so so basically we have you know in um 
in cinema studies, this is the a very quick and, and informal history, but you have classic Hollywood cinema, invisible style. So the idea that the camera apparatus, the, the film should never reveal that you were watching a film. And then um, French New Wave comes along. The whole big run of European cinema comes along. The um, uh, American filmmaking movement in the 1960s and 1970s, New Hollywood, quote unquote, that comes along. That complicates all of that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But the basic paradigm of the movie should not tell you you're watching a movie unless it's for comedy or whatever um, it's still basically unbroken. I mean, you're not watching Transformers films and like being aware of the camera as a thing, um, or or watching I don't know whatever they, whatever children watch these days. Fortnite, whatever, whatever Star Wars is coming out. Yeah, <laughs> Fortnite. Fortnite. Can't see is a Fortnite Star in a theater. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, that's definitely gonna happen, right? Oh yeah. There's no way that doesn't. Anyway, no, there's gonna be a tie-in. Yeah. Yeah, um, but so so the difference so that that would be a you know if you're looking through someone's eyes and you're not being aware of the camera apparatus then yeah that's the POV shot the subjective shot is like what if uh, light you know so so say we're in a point of view and then a, a security guard with a flashlight cuts that that light beam across our vision and it goes white and we can't see. Um, like would really happen to you in real life. That's a subjective shot. You are uh, being made a subject in relationship to whatever's happening, which weirdly enough means you're like, get a body and, and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, this I think is an interesting argument. I think it's an argument that uh, makes a lot of sense coming out of the 1990s, but kind of contemporary to this book coming out and right afterward, you have a big run of uh, uh, found footage films. Yes. And you have a big run of um, shaky cam movies. Yeah. Just straight up movies with shaky cam. You also have a big run of J.J. Abrams films, Mm -hmm. which notoriously are kind of um, new Hollywood-ish in that... You know, when you see a lens flare, you're seeing a lens flare because the lens of the camera is producing that. It's not something you would really see in real life. And of course, in J.J. Abrams, those are all fake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's, those are not real, right? But they are to—they are signaling that you are looking at the scene through an apparatus that it, that has a lens. So I think the linearity and the the. Um, uh, I don't know, the solidity of this argument really begins to fall away in the visual culture of the 2010 and afterward. Yeah. But also at the same time, that is what he says at the end, right? He says that all this is kind of becoming compressed and, and changing together. So he's not wrong. It's just this, it would be hard to teach this chapter, I think, because so many uh, students would be very confused about the claims being made. Right. Well, and this is what I thought was really fascinating because, um, So, you know, the fact that, like, I don't know, the primary mode for uh, sitcoms on TV, at least until fairly recently, was, you know, mockumentary shaky cam, right? Like, that, that shows how much this is not true or hasn't been true for about a decade. Um, Mm -hmm. But it also fits into this larger argument he is making, which is essentially that um, games... uh, allow this works for games the first person perspective works for games in a way that it doesn't for film um 
in the sense that it does not feel alienating. The reason it does not feel alienating is because in a game, when you have a first-person perspective, you can, in fact, control your movements and your actions to some degree, right? There is something, um, basically, he is saying, uh, extremely alarming and sort of disturbing being made a subject in kind of that, like, captive, unresponsive way um, that a, a, a cinematic uh, subjective shot in, installs. Uh, the big contrast to this is the predatory vision that he pulls out of uh, Carol Clover's book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, um, which mm -hmm. is a very foundational book on um, horror films and gender, and specifically dealing with the slasher films, where uh, it is pointed out that the killers in these slasher films are often um, viewed uh, from subjectively. Uh, that is to say, um, very often, and Friday the 13th is maybe the most like famous corny example of this, although Halloween is really the, the ultimate first example of this, of uh, viewing the world through the killer's eyes for some amount of time. Ne not seeing the killer because for the first third of the movie, you view, the, you view everything uh, that the killer is doing through the killer's own eyes. Um, and you are made to identify, or at least inhabit that that uh, subject position. Um, so, uh, <clears throat> Galloway points well, out. That, oh, sorry. Go on. Well, I mean the the, the distressing nature of that too is really yeah. revealed. Halloween's, I think, a really great example. Um, because it's not just distressing because you're like a murderer. Mm -hmm. um, it's distressing because when you when it's revealed whose body you were in, right? Right. Little kid, Michael Myers, that's so much more distressing. Yes. Um, so it, it kind of doubles down on, on that kind of thing. Right. So um, it is interesting because essentially what Galloway is saying is that um, games take this thing from horror movies and by basically like making it like, well, except now you get to do the killing. <laughs> It's okay, yeah. right? Now it works suddenly, right? Suddenly it is not as alarming um, because you're the one who's doing it. And that's really yeah. interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and I, you know, I also think the other side of this happens um, with, um, like, contemporary VR experiences, right? I don't know if I would I would say games, but, like, specifically the things are, that are, like, now you're a Syrian refugee. Mm-hmm. Just experience that. that. That's a very similar kind of... of um, it is taking technology that's really developed with games in mind and then bending it back toward this kind of cinematic subjective. Um, and it, it's only even weirder. Well, on one hand, it's really weird. On the other hand, people claim to have very profound, empathetic uh, responses to it. That is hotly critiqued. That is hotly... Um, uh, discussed. I'm not taking a position on it at all. I'm just reporting that that is what people say on all sides of it, right? People who experience it and people who develop it. Right. Um, as well as there are plenty of people who say that's not true, too. Um, but it's interesting to see that, that that his argument maps directly onto that as well, right? Right. It's, it's in fact, the weird being made a subject that would induce some sort of effect, positive or negative, on you. Right. So... Um, yeah, the, I, that's one of the reasons I find this interesting. And then he, he builds into this idea that he calls gamic vision, which he says is working. It's a uh, sort of the, the way that video games have acclimatized, uh, people to, or at least led people to kind of imagine ways of seeing space that they before now have not been sort of accustomed to seeing 
if you can follow this, uh, results in uh, films turning toward gamic vision. And sort of one uh, big example he uses here is from the the very famous bullet time scene from uh, The Matrix, uh, which he talks about how, because this is sort of purely a special effect, right? This is a, a gamic vision because it is a complex simulation made to uh, model a particular real-world event, in this case, mm -hmm. a bullet firing out of a gun, and we are now uh, being invited to see it in a way that only a machine simulating that event could see it. Dank. Yep. <laughs> um, and this results in what he calls like an aesthetic of artificiality. He name drops David Cronenberg's film Existence, uh, which, shout out, I love Existence. Um, and I know exactly what he means because there are parts of that movie that capture very, very well in a very uncanny way the precise sort of feeling and tone of a middle-budget first-person shooter made in 1998. Yeah, everyone talks in NPC dialogue. <laughs> even the main characters. Well, like even even the buildings, right, are like designed in the same way with like sort of these like flat, like earthy colors and oh, it's it's so interesting seeing like the set design and stuff because it doesn't look fake, it looks like a real version of a fake thing. Yeah. Right. And um Jude Law's in it who yes. looks like a fake human being. Yes, yes. He looks like he's modeled out of clay. He does. Um, um, yeah, yeah. So at the very end, just to, to uh, recap, at the on the last page, sixty nine, mm -hmm. uh, he writes: where film uses the subjective shot to represent a problem with identification, games use the subjective shot to create identification. While film has thus far used the subjective shot as a corrective to break through and destroy certain stabilizing elements in the film apparatus, games use the subjective shot. To facilitate an active subject position that enables and facilitates the gamic apparatus. So it's not just like that they use it to their benefit, it's that it's crucial mm -hmm. to first person games. Yes. Which is, as you pointed out, disturbing. Yes. Chapter three Social Realism. Yay! Woo! So uh, a good video game has at least 15% of its content devoted to Lenin. <laughs> uh, and that's it that's social that's social realism next chapter that's it. the end no. um how do you feel about this opening anecdote for this chapter michael um so I, I should it. probably mention the anecdote so people listening know what we're talking about um mm -hmm. <clears throat> so the day after uh, the United States uh, initiated the second Iraq war, uh, Sony filed or tried to file a, a trademark on the phrase shock and awe for a future video game title. Yeah. Yeah, we literally did a multiple day long by we, I mean, the United States military mm -hmm. did a multiple day long bombing campaign of major cities <clears throat> and Sony tried to, to, uh, uh, trademark that. That doesn't really pay off in anything. I don't think in this no, chapter, it doesn't. but it truly is like a, I'm surprised that anecdote didn't make its way into games of empire. Yeah. 
No, it feels like something that should have been there, but it doesn't, uh, it, it kind of just starts out uh, with this. And uh, I mean, so to give you an example of how this chapter develops, that's the beginning of the first paragraph. <clears throat> the first sentence of the uh, next paragraph is thus. The conventional wisdom on realism in gaming is that because life today is so computer mediated, gamers actually benefit from hours of realistic gameplay. So this is how, how, how that jumps. But basically what... Yeah. What he's, <laughs> That's not the common argument. <laughs> <laughs> well, you want to say more about that? <laughs> yeah, so, so right. Um, in, in, I was actually looking at the, for the next... A couple sentences later, he says, This was Ronald Reagan's argument in the 1980s when yeah. he famously predicted that action video games were training a new generation of cyber warriors ready to fight real foes on the real battlefield. <laughs> um <laughs> So, uh, so, so, yeah. So, so his argument here is that playing games ultimately produces a kind of person who is able to do things in the digital world that other people can't. Um, we, I guess, we could call this the Metal Gear Solid Two theory <laughs> of uh, creating um, genome soldiers, right? Through the VR missions, of course. Well, I mean, and also, like, what he's trying to get at here is sort of the. Uh, <clears throat> what we might call the alarmist position that uh, making doing things on a computer makes you better at doing those things. And when I say those things, I do not mean necessarily using a computer, but doing the things that the computer is allowing you to imagine yourself doing. Yeah. Right. Um, and so he develops that into what he calls the Columbine theory of realism. Um, games plus score equals psychotic behavior and around and around. Um, so this is like a basic media effects argument, right? The, the kind of thing that, uh, Amanda Phillips was interested in sidestepping. Mm -hmm. Um, we talked about a little bit in last episode. Um, but he, I, I don't know if he takes it on head on. I mean, he does sidestep it to some degree, um, in, in a similar way, but he is interested in, in the next subsection in the chapter is about this or is titled this realisticness versus social realism. Mm -hmm. Um, and he, you know, in, in, in the way that, um, you know, social realist kind of people in different media art forms, particularly, you know, something like Italian neorealism and film, um, they make a distinction between recreating a um, social situation, mm -hmm. right? So a realism of relations um, as opposed to a documentary, you know, or an artifact that speaks uh, directly to the thing. So, for example, um, you know, playing a sniper elite game and shooting Hitler in the head and then watching in, in X-ray as it, <laughs> goes through the particular part of his brain and his eyeball that is realistic that is not realism mm -hmm. for Gal or for Galloway um, we would need to be able to find out like the the relationship between an allied Nazi who's in a or, or an allied sniper not an allied Nazi <laughs> an allied sniper who's in a position to kill Nazis um, and we would need to get some sort of relationship between him and the troops and relationship between him and his food supply lines and um, is he estranged from the other people in his unit who he's not around for weeks at a time and does he have someone back home um, does he get mail things like that things that would demonstrate a social relationship mm -hmm. um, so I, I mean I think this is an interesting argument yeah 
Well, I mean, he's essentially arguing, right, that um, because to a certain extent uh, the 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 capacity of of a, a computer to visually reproduce, like, uh, I mean, like what we would call photorealistic graphics, right? Because that is sort of so trivial to a certain extent, like you can image all sorts of impossible crap on computers in a way that makes it look real, even though it's not, um, mm -hmm. means that we need to have a different metric for how we understand realism. And so his example, or one of his examples of this, is State of Emergency. Yes. A glorified tech demo. Right. Um, from Rockstar. Is that right? Yeah. it's uh, it? Yeah, between uh, Grand Theft Auto 3 and Vice City, I believe. Yeah, no, I remember. God, no. So State of Emergency is one of those games I haven't thought about in years. 2001. Oh, my God. So, so kids... <laughs> State of Emergency is a game where you start riots. And and that's it. And that's essentially it. Yeah, it's it's about like look how many NPCs we can have on screen at one time and all the sort of explosions and stuff that can also be modeled. Yeah, so he this is on page 76. He says State of Emergency the riot game from Rockstar Games has some of these proto-realistic qualities. The game co-ops the spirit of violent social upheaval seen in events like the Rodney King Rebellion in Los Angeles and transposes it into a participatory gaming environment. The game is rife with absurdities and excesses and in no way accurately depicts the brutal realities of urban violence. So in that sense, it fails miserably at realism. <laughs> but it also retains a realist core. While the game is more or less realistically rendered, its connection to realism is seen primarily in the representation of marginalized communities, disenfranchised youth, hackers, ethnic minorities, and so on, but also in the narrative itself, a fantasy of unbridled, orgiastic, anti-corporate rebellion. The game slices easily through the apathy found in much mass media today, instructing players to, quote, smash the corporation and giving them the weapons to do so. Cameron, what the hell? I... I don't. I, so I understand the argument, like the Bazinian argument about realism coming from film studies. Because mm -hmm. that's a very important argument for our field. I don't necessarily, I want to be so on board for social realism in games. Yes. But I don't know if the burden of proof is met in this chapter for me. Yeah. I mean, like, for instance, State of Emergency has a story? Like, there are characters that are... I mean, I, I remember there being characters, and I guess they have, like, backgrounds. <laughs> yeah. I, I, but, but I also don't understand, like, why this is not also the case. So he, he goes on to say that America's Army doesn't do any of the things that it's it's realistic but it is not realism mm -hmm. and i i mean it within the context of the iraq war and uh, a generation of people who are going to grow up in the context of the iraq war and a um series of fantastical relationships with that war you know ideological material some percentage of people who are playing this game have family members or are serving in that war, mm -hmm. right? 
it seems to me that that would mean that the relationships are the yeah the relationships they're being modeled at least in some way look like those real relationships that people are having um the the way that that Bazin who who helps establish realism in cinema the way that he has been read most recently um has been um in showing not just a representation of a social situation but in something that is fully um internally consistent to itself mm-hmm um, so, for example, I wrote a blog post years ago, but, but one that I think is still true, and it, it's based off of Daniel Morgan's kind of re-articulation of Bazin that is ascendant. I mean, that this his interpretation of Bazin is kind of how we take it now in film studies, unless things have changed, I didn't know about it. Um, and so in um, the game Remember Me, there is a section of the game where you're like crawling along a ledge, and there's a holographic... Uh, advertisement like a sign Mm -hmm. and you can jump through that sign and it like blinks out of existence and it comes back in and to me like that is realism like filmic realism in a game is wholly internally consistent the diegesis never breaks it presents us with a little factoid about the world that relates to our uh, player character appropriately and then we can look at that and go oh that's what makes this world its own world which is how Bazin kind of gets interpreted now. Mm-hmm. I don't know why you can't do that with America's Army. It just might not be very good at it. Yeah. Um, yes. And I don't know why... I, I mean, I don't know why the argument that's being made here... So he then goes on to talk about Special Force, um, which is made by the Central Internet Bureau of Hezbollah, Um and then he talks about Under Ash, which we also talked about uh, in our Games of Empire episode. And for both of these, he says, well, actually, these do work because the people who are playing them can locate themselves in this uh, video game version of the actual ideological struggle that they are involved in day to day. And so then, therefore, it works. But again, everyone in the United States is involved in the Iraq War. Right. <laughs> when America's army is out or in the year after America's army is out. Right. No. So there's there's an interesting way, yeah. Um there's an interesting way that I think he acknowledges the idea that like what we acknowledge what we call realism is is essentially an ideological effect. Mm-hmm. Right? Um but the problem is once you realize that realism is an ideological effect then it becomes extremely hard to figure out how to distinguish between that ideological effect and whatever it is uh, that realisticness is attempted is attempting or meant to register here, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yes. And, and where it comes down, right? So he says, the very last uh, paragraph, actually, he says, video games reside in a third moment of realism. Mm-hmm. The first two are realism in narrative, literature, and realism in images, painting, photography, and film. By the way, those have radically different histories in relationships to realism, but whatever. Yeah. Um, for video games, it is a realism in action. Um, video games, is, I'm skipping a little bit. Video games, like a whole variety of digital media, can play, compel players to perform acts any game that depicts the real world must grapple with this question of action. In this way, realism in gaming is fundamentally a process of revisiting the material substrate of the medium and establishing correspondences with specific activities existent in the social reality of the gamer. 
So if you were playing a game about being in a war zone and you were in a war zone, then fundamentally that produces some sort of realism of action. I don't know where like the bright line is where everything is not that. Right. The other thing that I just want to flag that I think is interesting is that he says um, this, this third moment of realism, however we want to understand that, uh, pushes us um, sort of to particular thinkers, particularly um, the people he names are Augusto Boal um, and Brecht, who are theater yeah. people. Um, specifically, uh, uh, Boal does theater of the oppressed and Brecht has uh, his, his epic theater um, and the way of understanding these are uh, both of them, like, that th they are not, they have very similar in some ways, and, but also, you know, fundamental differences in their politics and sort of their artistic aims. But what unites them is uh, they do not produce uh, sort of conventionally sort of bourgeois realist uh, drama. They do drama that is... Um, it sort of acknowledges itself as drama, right? Characters are not characters. They are sort of like abstractions or metaphors. Um, things do not, like actions do not progress or stack upon one another naturally, um, so on and so forth. Um, so there's something there. I have, again, like I can, I can almost do this thing where I can pull backward from Brecht toward state of emergency or what I remember of state of emergency to sort of figure out, like close a loop that seems to be almost being fashioned here, but it's not happening. And that's just something that I want to flag. Cause I think it's interesting thinking about, um, uh, the kinds of over the top absurdity that are present in uh, state of emergency. And then sort of the, uh, sort of similar things that happen in, in Brecht. Yeah, I think there are all, there are a number of interesting places we can go with this. Yeah, it's also a chapter that's only fourteen pages long. Yeah, and I think maybe that it's a tall order. I think there are lots of cool things here for people to expand on. I just yeah. don't know if it happens for me in this chapter. Oh yeah, no. Uh, which is, please which go is ahead, cut everything I just said. No, I'm keeping it. No, no, cut it, cut it. No one. It's in. No, no, no one needs needs me to talk about theater anymore. I understand. <laughs> so let's talk about allergies of control. Control. Theater's over, Michael. <laughs> uh, allegories of control. I like this chapter. It's a good chapter. I think it's interesting. It is mostly about um, uh, Civilization Three. Yes. Are you a big Civilization player? I am not, but I've played enough of those games and types like it that uh, I, I get where it's going. <laughs> I get where you're going, Alexander Galloway. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's uh, just just for everyone to know, an hour and a half in, Michael and I worked full days, and then we came home. I mean, not to the same home, but went <laughs> to our respective homes and recorded this late in the evening. So we're getting loopy. Yep, a little bit. We're making it happen. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I think for these last two chapters, I'm just going to cut to the quick of it. Okay. Because um, I think they're interesting. Um, but I think there's a lot of words here for for what I think are some pretty like clean arguments. Mm -hmm. So yeah, on page I, 90. Yeah, I have this moment later, so let's go. Okay. <laughs> um, so on page 90, he says, um, Video games don't attempt to hide informatic control. 
they flaunt it. And this is kind of on the other side of a, an argument he is making about uh, Gilles Deleuze and his um, uh, interview postscript on societies of control. It's one of the last things he does uh, before he dies. Not one of the last things, but it's one of several big works that happen uh, right before he dies. And um, in that, he says that Foucault, Michel Foucault, was very good at positioning and talking through disciplinary societies. So societies that were interested in disciplining uh, individuals and then in encouraging behavior in human beings that was self-disciplining, right? So I don't want to go to prison, so then therefore I will do X, Y, Z things to not do that. I'll never go over the speed limit despite the fact that uh, I don't see any police here, for example. Um, Deleuze says, well, if we used to have disciplinary societies, then alongside disciplinary societies, we will now have um, control societies that are not just about, hey, did you go over the speed limit or not, but they are about... Um, limiting your capacity to access things like going over the speed limit. Um, so no longer will it be, is there a cop around? Can I get away with going 100 miles an hour here? It will be um, the algorithm in my Tesla only allows me to go 73 miles per hour in this zone because of what my Google Maps information is telling it about road conditions. Exactly. Something like that. And then that extends to everything. So I can't buy a plane ticket because my credit score is too low, which is a real thing that happens. Yep. Um, or um, I, I, you know, I, I can't rent an apartment because my <laughs> credit score is too low. That's that's another real thing that happens. Yeah. Um, no, so, so whereas so, yeah. Foucault is talking about um, society is a place where uh, behaviors are encouraged or discouraged, uh uh, Deleuze wants to point out that uh, there's also this aspect of society where things are allowed or disallowed, and it's never necessarily stated. It is like literally just the, the avenues for action um, as they have been constructed uh, allow or disallow certain behaviors or certain actions. Yeah, that option just never appears to you. So, so, so the quote I was trying to read that I interrupted myself for a long digression. Um, Video games don't attempt to hide information, informatic control; they flaunt it. Look to the auteur work of, of game designers like Hideo Kojima, Yu Suzuki, or Sid Meier. In the work of Meier, the game, the gamer is not simply playing this or that historical simulation. The gamer is instead learning, internalizing, and becoming intimate with a massive, multi-part global algorithm. To play the game means means to play the code of the game, to win means to know the system, and thus to interpret a game means to interpret its algorithm, to discover its parallel algorithm, which is the McKinsey work term. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's it. That's the argument here, is that there are certain types of games that mimic or, or are symptomatic, like you were saying earlier, or contain the same set of relations as society as a whole, and um, you can, the, the work of playing the game uh, is the work of becoming hyper knowledgeable and hyper adept at mapping that algorithm and then understanding it. So knowing that if I make a road here and make a road there in city skylines and I can fill it with just the right mix of mixed zoning, commercial, residential industrial then i will make the perfect city and i can know that before anything even begins happening because i know the algorithm of city skylines so well mm -hmm. 
this is this is where I was. So you've you've cut this down very nicely, right? That is that is what the argument of this chapter is about. And then the thing that struck me is uh, sort of this point during uh, the discussion of civilization, where um, he's sort of talking about how do you how do you uh, situate. Um, how do you situate sort of the, the representational strategies of, of video games um, within kind of your knowledge that uh, they are programmed objects, right? So, and he, mm-hmm. he's very, like, surprised, and uh, I, I don't exactly know, maybe it's, not, maybe it's not surprised. He reacts to this very strongly, as if it is sort of a revelatory thing, but it does not surprise me. So give me just an example. Let me give me an example. Um, let me give an example. My God, I am tired. Um, <laughs> uh, so, okay. He basically, so he starts out talking about how, first of all, the, uh, what, there's a way of going at, uh, the first civilization game in sort of terms of sheer representation, right? Or not sheer representation, but sort of, um, let's say, uh, first level representation. Uh, how are different societies or different ethnicities represented in the game? Um, and we could critique those because there are a lot of uh, racist assumptions uh, embedded in that, um, particularly with regard to like what each different society is supposedly like able to do, or like what it's more adept at, or like more naturally adept at. Um, that's one way of criticizing that game. And then Galloway starts criticizing also. Uh, kind of the way that the game encourages you to become disciplined in this this uh, processes of informatic control. And he sort of suggests that, but now, well, he doesn't even suggest, here's how he says it, but now we are at an impasse for the more one allegorizes informatic control and civilization, that is to say, um, the more you talk about sort of um, how the menus are teaching you to interact with society in a certain way, um, the more my previous comments about ideology, that is to say the sort of racial assumptions embedded in the um, construction of these uh, different groups in the game, in the fiction, start to unravel. I don't really know why he says this, because it seems pretty clear to me that they don't. <laughs> yeah. Right, because then he says, it turns out, right, the more you try to pin down the ideological critique, the more you see that such a critique is undermined by the existence of something altogether different from ideology informatic code no actually right <laughs> like informatic code is itself like a, a a form of ideology or it's like a form of representing or um like embodying ideology like i don't understand why he is so sh- sort of i'm treating this like he's like pulled back the curtain on something yeah i don't know i don't know okay i was hoping i was hoping you had some sort of like other read of this <laughs> No, what page is this on? Um, it is 102. Okay. With the piece, uh, so he's talking about Lisa Nakamura. Yeah. Y- yeah. So here's another way he puts it. The more one examines the actual construction of racial and national identity in the game, the more one sees that identity itself is an entirely codified affair within the logic of the software. Identity is a data type, a mathematical variable. Like, it, yeah, but also like, identity is always like the result of whatever current technological means we have of constructing it 
Is this just yeah? I mean, is this because I, I'm yeah, ten I, years after the fact? Is that the only reason? He, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I I mean, he could be reading. I think Jennifer and Gonzalez's piece is out around the same time. Yeah. Her her digital race piece that was really um, kind of formative for for the field in that way or around that issue. Right. Um. So maybe. You know, maybe he's just not up on that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. And it's so he says, like, you know, the, like, World of Warcraft and, like, how you can customize your race and all of the stuff that that implies isn't yeah. isn't just, like, it, it's not an index of, like, offline racism. It's an extension of it. And it's like, yes. Yes, of course it is. Yeah. Maybe just no one had written that before. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't know because I mean that's I guess why he's leaning heavily on Nakamura she she has already at this point done that um yeah, I, I'm looking to use history as another example. The more one begins to think that civilization is about a certain ideological interpretation of history, neoconservative, reactionary, or what have you, or even that it creates a computer-generated history effect, the more one realizes that it is about the absence of history altogether, or rather the transcoding of history into specific mathematical models. So I, I guess what he's saying is that we what we want to do is we want to read a game as a symptom for contemporary racial ideology or whatever <laughs> but in fact what it is doing it's bootstrapping its own out of nothing and so to deal with that sometimes you ha- you might have to break links with what you think you know already about that ideology and then look purely at what the computer is doing mm. i don't know qualitatively what that buys you yeah. <laughs> like methodologically but that does make some sense to me at least um that that race does new stuff in code I think yeah. that probably is true. Uh, yeah, I, I would say, yeah, maybe that's what he's getting at, right? Is that, like, we have this idea called race, and what happens is this informatic kind of um, social structure gets uh, injected into that and fundamentally changes thereafter the ways that race is going to be imagined. Yeah, hmm. I think I, I think that has to be it. And th- that also is th- this long quotation that I won't read. Um but but yeah, he he argues that like game critics don't need to exist, which is interesting. Yeah. Did you see that? Um, yeah, I did. Uh, what do you think about that, Cameron? Oh uh, well, I mean, hey, maybe they don't. <laughs> but but no. Um, what I think is interesting about that is he says this is on for people who want to check it out. It's on one o three, and he says what is interesting about the Sims. And we could presumably uh, put other games in here as well. Is that The Sims has its critique on its surface? The Sims, he says, is so clearly a critique of consumer culture, of suburbanness, of middle class life, all those different things that you don't have to perform the work of diving deep in it to see what's really going on there because everything that's going on there is on the surface. And so, then therefore, people can get there on their own. And my only response would be, there are millions, literally millions of people who played The Sims then and continue to play The Sims that never get there. And I don't think The Sims, it might have been, and I know that there's a little bit of discussion of it being um, a critique or kind of tongue-in-cheek, I think that is largely gone from The Sims. I play yeah. a lot of The Sims, and I don't. I it's not it's not where I would go first for like a game that's autocritical of itself. Right, and even like, even like the in the first game, 
like the satirical elements never felt like satirical in, in the most, uh, I don't know, robust sense. It was more kind of like, ah, ha, ha, sort of goofy equivalent to thing from the real world. Yeah, exactly. Right. It felt more like, uh, like the kind of criticism that's in Spaceballs. Right. Yes. No. It. <laughs> I was actually thinking. It feels. It's a. It's a little like a Mel Brooks movie. Yeah. Um. Like. Oh ho. Or, Pizza the Hut. Yeah. <laughs> um. But. But yeah. Um. But so I think you know it, maybe that chapter is helpful for some people. Um. You know, certainly everyone got to hear us. Uh, hear how the sausage gets made, as it were, mm-hmm. of us trying to figure out what the hell's going on. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I think that chapter is okay. But you seem to to have a cutting it quick to the bone on chapter five, Michael. What what's that all about? <laughs> uh, so chapter five is a chapter called um, Counter Gaming, and he begins this with a discussion of mods. Um, and of course, because it's 2006, has to explain to everyone what a mod is. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, he sort of talks about what is interesting to him about mods, and he talks about um, uh, a couple of sort of digital artists um, who specialize in making mods for mainstream games that change the content or even the mechanics in, in really profound ways. And essentially... Um, because games for him are so bound up in the ways that they allow you to act, or rather to imagine yourself acting, um, he wants uh, gamers, or rather game designers, to start making games that allow the possibilities of what he calls radical action, um, as opposed to just merely gamic action. And in, in, in sort of short, asking for a space where games can be used to imagine new and better ways of acting, new and better ways of uh, utilizing the technological and sort of like social structures available to us. Um, and yeah, that's that's sort of what that is. Like let's make some let's make some art games, some political games. I uh, wrote my notes. This happened. It did. <laughs> the end. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he kind of digs, you know, into the French New Wave and to kind of the history of cinema that does this. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, um, this occurred. People now make full-fledged games that do activisms mm-hmm. um, in various different ways. It, it all worked out. Yep. And that's why the world right now is a utopia. Hey, the ludic century. Woo! We're living in it. We're living in it, baby. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm doing uh, like I have a lot of money in my hands and it's flying everywhere right now. And I've, I pulled sunglasses down and I'm smoking a big cigar and it's a utopia everywhere. That's, when I think of utopia, I think of holding lots of money and smoking a giant cigar. Yeah, with sunglasses. Yeah. Um, yep, that's utopia. But um, everyone can do it. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. So uh, that's that's sort of that's really the point of of that final chapter um, in the way that Galloway has focused on on games. Um, he's like, okay, cool. So these are things that this medium does, 
and now let's base let's press it press it beyond its boundaries right let's let's uh, politicize this particular form yeah um in the way that cinema did and and the kind of moves in theater that you were talking about before Mm -hmm. um i think it's this chapter is probably really interesting people as kind of a historical object more than it is an argumentative object although i think you could probably argue that the torch has not been picked up as much as he wants it to but this also feels very similar to the final chapter of games of empire Mm -hmm. um and in fact they pick up the language of counter gaming Mm -hmm. um in that book um but yeah, but but I imagine if you're an art history person or you're interested in the trajectory of this, um, you could probably read this final chapter alongside um, uh, John Sharp's Games of Art or something like that to have a sense of like what were the early two thousands like and what did that look like. Um, so it's good. So how how'd you find the whole book, Michael? Thumbs up, thumbs um, down. I enjoyed it. Uh, I would say, I mean, part of an ambivalent thumbs up. So I give it a thumbs up because I do enjoy it, and I like um, quite a bit of what is going on here. But Galloway is one of those writers who um, I know I understand and enjoy because I have a pretty vast uh, kind of uh, archive of experience with with certain strains of um, media and communications theory and philosophy um, that allows me to find this... Uh, exciting and challenging in ways, or yeah, at moments where otherwise it might be frustrating and challenging. Yeah, I think that's a, a very good way of putting it. We cut out a whole lot of him quoting Deleuze and Guattari and Derrida, yeah, <laughs> and various other uh, French and and world philosophers. Um, just because getting into those weeds is interesting, but I ultimately don't think really the argument's not built out of those pieces. Um, the argument's built off of paying attention to the video game form, which is why I'm also like, you know, um, an ambivalent thumbs up. I, I think that this is a really good example of how to read games in a way that is not kind of polluted by other disciplines. Um, and I say that, knowing full well that 70% of this book is in conversation with film studies. Um, but I think the parts where it really is talking about games, qua games, um, and and where it's trying to treat them as something unique and interesting, I think that's pretty good. Yep. Well, where can people find you on the internet, Michael? Uh, you can find me online on Twitter, the bird website. My username is at sign Warren is dead. You can find me on Twitter at C Kunzelman. You can also follow the Range Touch, of which um, uh, Game Study Study Buddies is only one show of several shows. Um, you, yeah, you can find at Range Touch. Uh, we've got a couple other ones. We have Mages and Murder Dads starting a new season soon, r- right after this episode comes out shortly. Um, and you can also listen to Helpful Homunculi, which is a, um, you know, we talk about tabletop games. How run a tabletop. tabletop games. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's a good show, I think. As someone who makes it. <laughs> um, we didn't check the question box for this episode, but maybe we will next time, because yeah. I forgot. For Me sure. too. I just got back um, from a conference. Yeah, everybody's busy. Yeah. Um, I'm moving. I'm in the middle of moving. Ooh, you can pro- I probably have a great echo on this thing for my empty room that I'm sitting in. But... Um, 
but yeah, so I don't know what next episode is, but I because we need to chat about that. Yeah. But probably a new book or a newer book. Mm-hmm. If, if I, yeah, yeah, no, we'll figure something out. Yeah, we'll figure that. We'll get back to you. So until next time, the game study study buddies are a fallacy of logocentrism. <laughs> <laughs>